Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Welcome to Space Junk. I'm your host, Annie Hanmer, and this week I bring you part two of my conversation with Dr. Vince Houghton, the chief historian and curator at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., We talk about how we balance privacy and freedom in our day-to-day interactions with technology, stereotypes of women in intelligence, and why Vince isn't a big fan of James Bond. If you haven't heard part one, I suggest that you go back and listen to it first, because this episode dives straight in midway through our chat. I'm excited also to officially announce that Space Junk Podcast is now being featured on the Space Australia website which is an awesome new platform for all things Astro Down Under. And of course, any opinions expressed by me in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of any organisations with which I am associated. Enjoy the podcast. The thing that could put something into uh, deeper orbit could be used as an ICBM to drop weapons all around the world. So Absolutely. Yeah. And so dual use across the board. And I think the internet people are starting now to realize we had this long, you know, 15 year time when it was like, yay, internet, right? Internet commerce. It's so wonderful. And then everyone said, oh, somebody figured out how to weaponize this. And now we have to deal with the repercussions. And it's interesting thinking about how as an individual we respond to that because with the dual use problem, I mean, my mobile phone is an incredible tool that I am using right now to record a podcast that will then be shared with lots of people who will then listen using their phones. It allowed me to navigate my way to meet you today. It allowed me to email you. It allows me to take photos of the James Bond car that you have in the lobby, which is awesome. So all of those things are great services that dramatically improve the capability that I have to do interesting things and create interesting stuff. But at the same time, I accept the fact that I have a device that I carry with me pretty much everywhere I go that is capable of listening to me, that the camera is capable of watching what I'm watching or watching me watching things, that the GPS tracking that's in it is capable of telling someone where I am at every time, and that there's probably nothing I can do about that, no matter how diligent I am with my privacy protocols. If someone really wants it, they'll get it. And so I'm interested in how you think about that as someone, you know, who creates a museum about this stuff, who studies it, but who also has a mobile phone sitting in front of him on the desk. How do you think about balancing that kind of personal freedom, which in many ways the U.S. is is founded on that notion with with kind of a a pragmatism? Well, I mean, I'm not a troglodyte, right? I mean, it's, it's new technology is necessary. We kind of you can't exist nowadays yeah. unless you're going to go off into the woods in a cabin and be the Unabomber, right? I mean, I balance it the same way I try to balance everything else. I mean, these are the same conversations that we, people were having when all new technology was created, right? I mean, this is, there are times, most technology is evolutionary, right? It's, it's slow changing. It's stuff we can kind of get used to as it moves forward. I mean, the first cars were developed 100, you know, let's say 150 years ago. They, they don't drive all that much faster now. They're much more technologically advanced. They're better gas mileage, but there's still four wheels. 
we're still driving on roads from point A to point B at let's say 50 miles an hour or whatever that is in kilometers per hour. Um, that's 80. Probably 80. It is 80, five to eight. Yeah, okay, so it's 80. Um, and uh, so there hasn't been a dramatic change. There, there certainly is when it comes to what's inside the car um, and the materials that make the car. But for the most part, that's evolutionary technology. Then every so often there's a revolutionary change. Revolutionary change is when the Wright Flyers at Kitty Hawk, you know, take off in a heavier than air craft. Evolutionary change versus revolutionary change is the difference between kind of figuring out math over hundreds of years and then when someone invents calculus all of a sudden, whether that's who the hell, Newton or somebody else. Um, revolutionary change comes when uh, solid fuel rockets are created and like, oh, we can go way high. Right. Sometimes, you know, in that, that's that's where you go from the Wright Flyer in 1903 to an SR-71 in the mid-1960s. Right. That's compare that with the, the car. Right. Sure. The dramatic difference. And all of these technical technological changes also have social implications. Well, too. absolutely. And, and that's where we're constantly. So for the for the, the evolutionary changes, there's not a lot of social upheaval. Right. Because we have plenty of time to kind of get used to things. We have plenty of time to you know, figure out the way that we're going to react to it, to teach others how to deal with it. It's the revolutionary change, you know, that hit us over the head with some new technology that has been difficult in the past, right? Nuclear weapons are a good example of this. The internet was a great example of this. Um, the internet had been around for quite some time before it became available to everyone, but it really became available to everyone instantaneously, mm. right? I mean, when CERN and others kind of created this World Wide Web, you know, everyone all of a sudden is online. Uh, and everyone has to kind of figure out what that means. And we're still trying to figure out what that means. And so I, I think that as we move forward, most of the changes will continue to be just basic evolutionary changes. Like every time a new iPhone comes out, right? Yeah, there's a neat new camera on the iPhone 11, but it doesn't see through walls. It's not x-ray vision, right? I can't like be like, you know, Every 12-year-old boy at the back of the comic wants the x-ray glasses that can see through the girl's clothes. It's not going to do that, right? Or at least that, the civilian-based ones aren't going to. Um, right. We always speak about what they've got at airport yeah, right. security yeah. in the U.S. But technological changes can also be revolutionary. And maybe that's going to be artificial intelligence. Mm. Maybe that's going to be in quantum physics, you know, the idea of building a true quantum computer, which they're getting closer and closer to. Um, maybe that's something we don't even see coming. Right, there's a lot of these in the past have been things we haven't seen coming, you know, where we're focused on AI, we're focused on cyber, we're focused on some of these new and interesting ideas that we already kind of hints of today. Whether it's like human machine hybrids, what other things, and then something comes out of left field, and that is truly the game changer, and we don't see mm -hmm. it coming, and we have to scramble to react to it. You know, people are like, well, predict what that is. I'm like, well, if I could, then it wouldn't come out of left field, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, if you think about the time from when nuclear weapons were understood to be possible, which is 1938, when Otto Hahn and team in Germany artificially split the atom and realized what they did, to 1945 when the first atomic bomb was tested, seven years. That's instantaneous. Mm. In the 1940s, right? How fast has technology changed today? Right, exponentially faster. Yeah. So someone could have an idea tomorrow for the next life-altering technology that in six months could be out and changing our lives since so we have mm -hmm. no time to react to it. And so um, I don't even think we know what mm -hmm. is going to be the next evolutionary change. 
We just have to hang on for the ride. Sure. I mean, and that's one of the things where we can look at it and go, oh, God, this is going to kill everyone. But that's going. That's what somebody said about every single change. Right. They were saying that history. about the Gutenberg Bible. Like, right. Right. Oh, this is. I mean, even going back to looking at like some of the most basic changes in history have had some of the most significant impact. Stirrups on horses. Right. You think stirrups? What's the big deal? Well, allowed people to wear armor on horses and allowed people to stand up. Yeah. While they were riding fast, which means they could shoot projectiles like bows and arrows and later guns. Little things like stirrups have had a dramatic change. The zipper. Right, my one of my professors uh, actually wrote a book on the history of the zipper. I'm like, really? And he's like, just think about it. I'm like, oh yeah, something small could be the game changing technology. It doesn't have to be something that someone spends a trillion dollars developing. And sometimes the game changing technology comes out of creative pursuits. I mean, let's talk about James Bond for a minute because I am a big fan. Um, and I know that you have some really interesting stuff here at the museum all about James Bond. And in fact, there's a whole, like, a room dedicated to... Pop culture, yeah. Like, yeah, spy movies yeah. and spies in pop culture and some information about how some of the things in those films, some of that imaginary technology then came to influence um, the ideas that, that real intelligence organizations had. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stories from people who used to run kind of the American equivalent of Q, Q's lab, uh, in, in the CIA, it's called the Office of Technical Services. Um, one of our board members is the former director of OTS. And he said that whenever a new Bond movie came out, the director would come downstairs and be like, can you make this, 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 and this? And in some cases, in, in fact, in most cases, the answer was, yeah, we've had that for 15 years. Mm. right? It just hasn't been public. In other cases, it was like, why do you want a watch with a laser beam thing and like you know some of these are completely ridiculous sure but it's certainly even the director of cia his kind of interest and his curiosity was that's neat let's have it mm. um but re really what it comes down to is, is some of our most popular exhibits or the are the, the gadgets the mm. technology and in many cases they're more amazing than mm. what you would find in a bond movie because the bond people are just kind of using their creativity their imagination Whereas the people at these agencies are actually have money behind it, and they can actually develop some of these gadgets long before they're even thought of by the outside world. And really what it comes down to is anything that we know about in civilian world has already, is already 15 years old in the intelligence world. Um, so when we learn about stuff like the Stingray technology, which is the cloning phones and, and kind of listening into conversations, that stuff's been around for quite some time mm. within the intelligence community. I mean, the intelligence community, the, the CIA built the first text message system in the 70s, right? And we didn't really start thinking about texting until decades later. Mm. So in most cases, when a new Bond movie came out, there wasn't anything like new. Mm. In most cases, the CIA guys said, yeah, I know we've had that for a while. Mm. Oh, in other cases, like that makes no practical sense whatsoever. I don't know why we need... A, a car with an injection seat in it, as cool as that sounds. I mean, right, I, but I you know, do need a car with a compartment to keep your champagne cool. Right. I need a car with an injection seat <laughs> in it, and I need one with machine guns. If you've ever if driven in D.C. traffic, and it's actually a good thing that they don't give me a car with machine guns. Because, uh, <laughs> if anywhere had it, it would be America. <laughs> oh, you know, right, exactly. Um, there are some states where you probably could have that legally. Um, mm. Texas, maybe. But, um, no, I, I think that... Bond is just a lot of fun, and, and, and there's very little in there that you, you could say is true to life. Mm. Um, most 
case officers at CIA don't jump out of perfectly good airplanes with a martini in one hand and a stupidly named blonde in the other. That's only on Tuesdays. That's not. I, I'm just in a position where uh, the pop culture stuff is more of a problem for us than a solution. Um, most Americans and most people around the world, that's the, really their only entry point sure. to espionage or to intelligence. And so they think they know a little bit about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is it's, it's not just not knowing stuff. It's actually knowing the wrong things. Um, and even the ones that take themselves seriously are problematic. There's a TV show on Showtime called Homeland that was very popular um, based on an Israeli show. But our version went eight or nine seasons um, and it was supposed to be like a realistic look at the at, at, at the CIA, um, gritty, and it was very you know had sex and violence and spies and and it was the worst, the least realistic portrayal of espionage. Bond was more realistic in many respects than Homeland was, but the problem was it looked so realistic that people thought it was true, and some of the messages that got across were some of the worst messages you possibly could like. The main character is Claire Danes, and, and she's uh, her, her, who she plays a woman named Carrie Matheson, who works her way up CIA to like high levels. But she does it basically by sleeping with all of her assets and by getting information, by creating these relationships, and she's promiscuous, and, and that's not a problem in real life. Um, there's no kind of Victorian sexual problems at CIA, but it's a big no-no to get in a physical relationship with your recruits, with people that you're recruiting. Now, other countries, not so much, right? The Russians actually have a school where they train women to be honey traps and all that stuff. Red Sparrow or read the book. Right. I mean, the the Sparrow school was real. They create women to do honey traps. I mean, Anna Chapman was a good example of this. She was captured in the United States in 2010. She was this gorgeous redhead that was basically sleeping her way up the New York Mm. real estate. She never got to the ultimate goal, which was... At the highest level, you can imagine who was in 2010 at the highest levels in the New York real estate market. Mm. Although I can't imagine he would have said no. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, other countries have their own philosophy. They weaponize the people right. themselves. We in the United States, certainly the CIA, you will get fired if it's, if any information comes out that you have any kind of romantic relationship with anyone that you've recruited. And there's a reason for this. It's not just like we're pious and we're you know you know we're very puritanical. No. Look, this is an agency founded on wild parties at Yale and Skull and Bones and, you know, um, kind of the Mad Men era of women secretaries. The, the reason for it is that you need to be professional with the people that you recruit. Mm. You need to be able to manipulate them into doing things that they don't want to do. You need to be able to put them in very, very dangerous situations, not to be reckless, but to, to get information for you. You need to be professionally concerned about them, but not romantically concerned about them. Sure. And you might not do your job or you might not have them do their jobs if you think it's too dangerous and you don't want to put someone you fall in love with you know, or have a romantic relationship in harm's way. That's a, that's a really bad way to run an intelligence agency. And so we've had, I know people who have been fired from CIA because they've fallen for one of their people that they've recruited. Mm. It happens. Um, and it's one of these things, of course, you, know, you can't get in the way of love kind of thing, but you just don't have your job anymore. Mm. Then you have a TV show like Homeland where literally that's what she does. Like, I can get that information. He's, you know, I'm hot. Not the way life is. Sure. Um, and that the problem is that you have this horrible stereotype that women intelligence officers have one asset, and that's their bodies, instead of the fact that they're brilliant or they're, they're gutsy and they can do just like men can without, you know, having to stoop to that level. 
um, it's done more harm than good in most pop culture. I'm, I'm, the, kind, I'm the kind of, <laughs> out of the staff here, I'm the, the pop culture hater. Right. Um, most everyone else understands and appreciates pop culture. I'm the one who's just like set it all on fire um, because it really has a detrimental effect on the way we try to teach the public about real intelligence. Um, the one way I kind of soften that a little bit is if it makes them interested enough to want to come into the museum, mm. then it's okay. But if they're not open-minded enough to accept the reality that nothing in, in real life is like what they see in the movies, then to me it does more harm than good. I'm interested in the way that the more recent Bond films have moved away from that kind of Bond that you know sleeps with all these women and runs around the place to a more kind of Kinda. angsty Bond, a little, yeah, a little. I mean, but yeah, then sure, they've, just... they've really upped the role of Q, though. Like sure. they've made Q a, a real, um, a really important part of that. And I think part of that is because you have this movement towards technology. Like Q sits there and pipes away on the keyboard and hacks and right. so on. Well, and, and M, M's role is also elevated somewhat as talking kind of about policymakers and about the, the, the role that right. intelligence plays within the broader kind of governmental system. Which and I think a great is example of a, a sort of a female you can look up to. Right. I mean, Judy Dench, is, is her character is based on a real person, a woman named Stella Remington, who was the first female head of any Western intelligence agency. She was the head of MI5. Hmm. She's on our board. Uh, she's basically Judy Dench went to Stella and said, I'm going to watch you. I'm going to do what you do cut her hair exactly. Stella has a short white hair, just like Judy Dench did, very kind of gruff. Um, and yeah, so you've got a great role model there. Um, but still bond within 10 minutes of meeting some woman. They're falling into bed together. Vesper Lynn tried to resist for about a half an hour of the movie and then falls into bed with him. I mean, there was a scene in, maybe it, which one had uh, Monica Bellucci in it? Was it the last one, Spectre, where he knew her for like 10 seconds? And he's taking off her clothes. Sure. That, that's problematic. Um, but it's also the fact that Bond is using, and, and actually Judy Dench says this, that Bond is using his fists more than he's using his brain. Yep. That, you know, most intelligence officers who are part of CIA or MI6, um, if they have to pull a gun, things have gone really, really badly. If they find themselves in a car chase through the streets of Moscow, Things have gone really, really badly. Right. I mean, yeah. everything I've heard is that, um, and obviously I'm not the expert in this field, but that actual espionage is very boring. Oh, yeah. It's like mostly sitting behind desks or just at information. walking around, right? I mean, it's, it's the movies make it, if you want to go black, which is the term we use for being sure that you have no surveillance. Mm hmm. In the movies, you like change a train real quick or like throw a hat on or like a fake, you know, mustache yeah, or something. Reversible dress. Right. And, and within five minutes, the, the KGB is like, where did he go? And uh, <laughs> In Moscow during the Cold War, if you wanted to uh, ensure that you were black and you could actually meet with an asset, it could take up to 10 hours where you're sure that you've lost the KGB. And you're using everything from technical means to track the KGB, like radio and listening to their radio and seeing if they're reacting to your movements, to walking around and sitting on benches and reading newspapers and feeding ducks and going to movies and... Stuff that if you made a movie out of it, my God, it would be the most boring movie ever. Our former executive director, Peter Ernest, spent 36 years at CIA, almost all of it in operations. So he was in areas we call denied areas, so behind the Iron Curtain, never once carried a gun in 36 years. If you find yourself in a shootout, then you're going to get fired when you get home. You've really, really screwed up. Mm. And, and that's what the movie is. And now in, in the age of terrorism, it's changed a little bit. 
right? We have four deployed people in terrorism areas. If you're in Afghanistan, you're armed to the teeth. You're, you're even as CIA. Mm. But we have the movies show you like going into Prague and you've got guns and all that stuff. It's not real life. Yeah. Right? Because if you get caught with guns, there's not much we can do about it. You're going to prison for a long, long time. Um, and, and that's just, unfortunately, the only way to make these movies exciting is to have mm. them action-packed. Mm. And life in espionage is not action-packed. This is, this is where you use your brain more than your brawn. Sure. Um, so. Speaking of action-packed and exciting, let's talk a little bit about this museum. Okay. Um, I came in on Sunday and uh, went through my briefing, was given a fake identity, a tag that seemed to track me wherever I went, um, and assessed whether I was, you know, there are tasks as you go through that assess your skills as a secret agent. Um, I found this a very interesting museum experience. So previously, I'm a big fan of the Berlin Spy Museum, mm-hmm. but that's much more a museum which is stuff in cabinets. And it's awesome stuff in cabinets, and I really recommend going. But this museum is a bit different. This museum is, I would describe less as a museum and more of an experience, perhaps. We still have a lot of stuff in cabinets, too. I mean, we, we have, there's more espionage artifacts on display at the Spy Museum than any other public museum in the world. Mm. Um, everything from um, the letter that created America's first intelligence agency during the American Revolution to the ice axe that killed Leon Trotsky that's worth that was a highlight, yes. Uh, a lot of money. Um, to everything in between, right? I mean, we, we, we certainly have more one-of-a-kind state-of-the-art artifacts than you'll find anywhere else. But we realize, we're all educators here, and we realize that people learn in very different ways. Some people go to museums and want to read a lot. That's me, right? Mm-hmm. If I go to a museum where there's just stuff on a wall and there's not a lot to actually learn about, I'll be done in 15 minutes. I just don't want to walk around and look at stuff. I want to read. I want to learn. Mm-hmm. I want to know the background, the history of things. So we have artifacts, we have labels, we have the stuff you'd find in a traditional museum. But there are also people out there that really don't learn without touching, right? They need to actually interact. And so we do have that interactive level, that mm. layer upon where you can come in, not just kids, adults, everybody in between, to, to learn through doing. Mm. And in some cases, this is as complicated as neuroscience and understanding how the brain works with cognitive biases and how analysts have to pay attention to how their brain works. It's kind of too as mundane is the wrong word, to kind of as physical as hanging off of what is kind of modeled after like a helicopter strut. And everything in between, right? I mean, we also, intelligence is about problem solving. So a lot of our, our interactives are about problem solving as well, mm. about trying to figure out, okay, how can I think creatively to solve what is an unsolvable problem, or at least looks like an unsolvable problem? Um, it's the kind of thing with how do you disguise yourself, right? That's your problem is how do you blend into mm. an area and not look like yourself, right? So there's a disguise interactive where you figure that out. There's an interactive to create a gadget, create like, you know, be cue yourself. Um, they're problem solving also. But even like within our, our codes room where we have um, different levels of code games, everything from a basic substitution cipher that you know, most anyone can do, right? Where A becomes one and B becomes two. To a frequency analysis question, which is more statistics and probabilities. You're talking high school or above level, where you're looking at just a bunch of jumbled letters and using statistics to try to figure out which ones might be which. We want some. We want to be accessible to younger audiences, but not dumbed down yeah. for everyone else. And that that's hard, right? We, we kind of had to walk a fine line, especially when you're talking about interactivity, because it, if it's too dumbed down, it becomes hokey. Mm. Right, it becomes kind of more of like a kitschy, like kids thing, 
but if it's too advanced, then the kids are like, the hell are we doing? Like, I can't do any of these interactives, and they get bored to death. Mm. So finding ways to make it interesting for both is really what we strove to do. I mean, to give you an idea, this is not about interactivity, but this is about one of the films that we have in the museum. So mm. we have a human intelligence case study based on a real story of a Shin Bet officer, so the Shin Bet Israeli counterintelligence, who recruited the son of the founder of Hamas. So talk about a highly placed asset. So, you know, you've got someone at the very highest levels of the terrorist organization that's been, you know, vexing Israel for decades. And they recruit him to work for Shin Bet. They tell their story because we know them well. They're both out and, you know, so they are available to tell their own story. So everyone of every age think that's an interesting story, right? The kids think it's kind of a spy story, but that is kind of action-packed. But on top of that, we added a layer of the current chief psychologist at CIA who comes and talks about the psychology of recruitment, about how it's about manipulation, how it's about creating a trust, but also forcing them to take risks they wouldn't otherwise take. That's not for kids, right? That's a high level. So in the same space, we have something kind of for everyone. We have a neat, rockin', you know, fun spy story but with an added layer of something that really is an adult focus mm. on understanding uh, how manipulation works when recruitment. Matahari is another good example. I'm kind of sticking with the same room, right? We have the story of Matahari. Matahari is a World War I spy who did actually sleep her way to information. She just didn't sleep her way high enough. She slept with the wrong people, got really bad information, ended up being executed for it. That story is a normal spy story. But on the other side of it, around the other side of the kind of the main story, we have a film in which we have women intelligence officers from everyone from a case officer on the ground all the way up to Stella Remington, who Judy mm-hmm. Dench's character was based on, and the current deputy director of analysis for CIA. So someone working right now as the deputy director of CIA, all talking about being a woman in intelligence. And different, you know, so you have women who are in their 30s and then women who are in their 70s and everyone in between. Talking about how being a woman affected their career path also talking about how the stereotype of Matahari, because Matahari now has become the stereotype, as you see in Homeland, right, where you sleep your way, how that stereotype either slowed down their career, they could take advantage of it, and other things like that. Kids don't give a rat's ass about that video. It bores them to death. But it wasn't made for them, right? It's, it's mm. made for adults. It's made for people who actually already know the stereotype of Matahari to try to destroy that stereotype. So we were in a position where we needed to try to be something for everyone. And usually when you try that, you fail. But we think we've done a pretty good job of it. Do you think that the museum recruits people? No. No, and we, we, we have as many people, and we, we, we did some uh, very, very, I want to say unofficial, um, very kind of casual surveys of people walking out the door uh, for the first month or so that we were open. Uh, and we asked not that question, but a question similar to it, like, are you more or less inclined to like want to work for an intelligence agency? And just as many people said less mm. inclined because it's not like the movies. And they're learning it's not like the movies. And they're learning that there are repercussions for being right. caught. There are repercussions, particularly in the world of counterterrorism, but there are certainly repercussions now in the world of traditional intelligence. If you're caught in North Korea or Iran or now even Russia, life is not great. Uh, and it's not as sexy as some people think. So there, there may be some people who come in and be like, this is exactly what I want to do with my life. Um, I don't think we recruit them. I think, if anything, the people who are already thinking in that direction, and maybe we show them that there's a path other than being a bond that they could take mm. to the intelligence community. 
Um, I run our podcast here at the museum and I get a lot of emails, um, especially when I have somebody kind of tangential to intelligence, someone who, like a psychologist uh, mm-hmm. or someone who um, does S&T, like a gadget maker. To where I get people like, I've always wanted to be a psychologist. I want to, I, I'm not going to stop wanting to be a psychologist, but I never realized that the intelligence community needs psychologists. Yeah. You know, so I realized now that, yeah, I can work for CIA, not to like, you know, be a spy, mm-hmm. but to give my skill set to counterterrorism officers who have seen way too much in the field and need to speak to somebody. Or I can use my skill set to track down the next Robert Hansen, who's a, you know, borderline psychopath. Who's going to who's going to be a spy and give stuff to the Russians? So, so those those are things that I think we can do. Mm. Um, I don't do them on purpose. Um, it, we are a non-governmental institution. I could care less if people go and become intelligence officers. Um, I think we're probably fifty fifty. I mm. think we turn off as many people as we turn on. I've got to ask, as someone who's an Australian, it's called the International Spy yeah, Museum. Yeah. How do you think about the international component? Because my I have to be honest with you that um, I was expecting something really international. Like I was expecting, you know, this is what Russia does. This is what China does. This is what France does. And what was presented was, I think it would be fair to say, a fairly American perspective on the world of espionage with some links internationally. Like there's some really great information um, and stuff about the SOE, for example, that I just loved. But there's not a whole lot about um, partnerships or... Sure, and, and yeah, I mean, you're not going to... It's international. A lot of our case studies, we made a, a very conscious effort not to make them American. Mm. So there are ones that are just too important not to tell the American side because they are essentially the case study that really defines the type of operation we're talking about. Mm. Like you're talking about paramilitary Talk about the Bay of Pigs. Talk about Army of the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Those are, of course, are American stories. But they're really the ones that are just exemplars of paramilitary. But there are few and far between that where we kind of hunker down on the American side. Yes, we don't necessarily talk as much about inter- interagency cooperation as we could. Um, we actually did more in the old museum, surprisingly. Hmm. Um, and some of the artifacts we had to give back. Uh, we had artifacts from Canadian intelligence. We've certainly had long conversations with, with Australian intelligence, uh, not only um, from the kind of an Australian intelligence, but also a signals directorate inside Australia. Um, we know them well. We just don't have actual artifacts. And really a lot of it is we're telling the stories we can through the objects that we have. So when we, we, we could have an entire museum focused on Russia, because mm. we have as enough Russian artifacts, and certainly an entire museum focused on the British, because we have enough British artifacts. What we tried to do is to bring in countries from outside of that little triumvirate when we could, mm. when we had the opportunity to do so, um, which really depended highly on our ability to get stuff. Um, so anyone listening to this in Australia who's got a bunch of great artifacts uh, that we could possibly use in the future, let me know. Uh, we'd be happy to have all sorts of temporary exhibits with Australian intelligence and everything else moving forward. Um, no, we, we've got good relationships yeah. um, with with intelligence agencies around the world. Um, it's just to the point where it's very difficult for us in many respects to tell stories without things. Um, and until we get things, uh, then maybe that's what makes a museum a museum, right? It, you, wouldn't, you can learn all you want from your house online, but you want to go see the actual thing. Uh, we, things we call artifacts. Um, <laughs> or stuff. A stuff, random shit. Yeah, no. 
you, you sometimes that leads us in the direction of that what story we're going to tell. Um, I mean, to me, the Trotsky story is not the most interesting assassination story. Don't tell anybody here. Um, but we have a $10 million ice axe, so we're going to tell the Trotsky assassination story. Um, and it's a great ice axe. Yes. It was a highlight of my visit, I yeah, have I to mean, say. It, people and love the Kim it. the Kim Philby stuff as well was um there's like a jacket and Oh yeah, a hat. well Philby Philby stuff, it's all real. Yeah, and um, it's amazing. And we have a chance to get a lot more of it, and we have a lot more of it that we just can't put on display. It helps when you know his widow. And when Rafina Philby says, What do you want? and we say, What you got? She says, Take everything, we're like, sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, that, that happens. Uh, that, and that's one of the interesting thing. I mean, for the listeners, anyone planning a trip to DC, um, our artifacts are real, right? So when you see a pair of handcuffs, it was a pair of handcuffs that were used to arrest the person, right? Not just a random pair of handcuffs. Uh, when you see a particular thing like an ice axe, it's really the ice axe or Kim Philby stuff. It's really Kim Philby stuff. So we've taken a lot of time, um, to make sure that we can represent reality in such a way where you're not seeing like, some cheap reproduction. You're seeing the real thing. A lot of the ways we got artifacts was we called up former spooks and said, what do you got in your attic that you're not supposed to have? <laughs> um, and a lot of them are like, I got all sorts of stuff I wasn't supposed to take home. Uh, and so we were able to do it that way. And that, that's, you know, the World War II generation is dying. And then so a lot of people are finding stuff from them. Um, but Australian intelligence, especially, I mean, Australian and New Zealand intelligence um, have played such a vital role uh, as members of the Five Eyes. Uh, along with uh, Britain, Canada, and the United States, in basically the Cold War success that we had uh, against the Soviets and now against the Chinese, um, that we'd love to have stuff. And I know there's stuff out there. We just don't. Right. It, we're just not as readily available as you know the Canadians and the British. And interestingly, I think it's that stuff that really tells the human story. Right. In the object, you have the embodiment of a person and how they used it and who they were and all of those things. And I think especially in a world where it seems as if cyber is taking over everything and everything's about technology, it's nice to remember that there's a human at the center of all of it. And we always try to anchor every story, even the technology-based stories, in the person. You yeah. know, so even when we're telling stories about overhead reconnaissance, we anchor it in Francis Gary Powers, who's a YouTube pilot. Or we anchor it in Kelly Johnson, who was the engineer that designed a lot of these aircraft for Lockheed Skunk Works. Even when we're talking about stuff like signals intelligence, which is intercepting communications, we anchor it in people. Uh, because it's without the people, you don't do it. It doesn't exist. And, and so that's always been something that we've uh, been cognizant of, of the idea that visitors don't identify with stuff. They identify with people. And the only way they're going to identify with a thing is if there's a person behind it. And that has been the kind of the key to this museum's success since it opened in 2002. Vince, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. If people want to talk to you, um, if they have artifacts, especially for our Australian listeners, if you've got something cool, they want it here, uh, how can they get in contact? Email is the easiest way. Um, my email address is all over the place, so I'm happy to give it to you. It's just V Houghton, so V-H-O-U-G-H-T-O-N at spymuseum.org. And if people want to listen to the podcast, it's found at SpyCast. It's called SpyCast. I didn't name it. I, I, I don't know if I would have called it that. That's fine. Uh, it's everywhere. It's on iTunes and Spotify and on our website and all the places that you find podcasts. And I actually personally endorse and recommend this <laughs> podcast. I'm, I'm a big fan, um, which is how I came to chat to Vince today. And the other one I found recently, you're on Twitter as well, at SpyCast. Yeah, I'm, I'm at SpyCast on Twitter. Personally, I'm at 
at Intel Historian, I-N-T-E-L Historian. Uh, the museum is I-N-T-L Spy Museum. So we're all over Twitter. Um, you, you don't want to follow me unless you just want me to get really snarky about stuff. I just make fun of everything. Um, but the podcast and the actual museum do real stories. Um, yeah, and we're, we're, we're very much on YouTube as well. So we do a lot of programming uh, here inside the museum for the public. Uh, so where we'll bring in an author or bring in a former spook or something like that. We record the programs. A lot of that goes up on YouTube. So we, the Spy Museum has its own page. So that's another place that you can go look at some of our content. You've been listening to Space Junk. If you'd like to find out more about anything on this podcast, you can tweet me or find me on Instagram as at Annie Hanmer. And you can also email thespacejunkpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.